Now, NDE Radio, a weekly exploration of near-death experiences and similar encounters with the other side. Now, here's your host, Lee Whitting. Welcome to NDE Radio with Lee Whitting. Whether you're listening on TalkZone, by podcast, through the archives of our ad-free shows on our YouTube channel, or connected through the incredible content of our Facebook page. Today we continue our conversation with Robin Lansong, which began some seven years ago and which we recalled in an encore presentation in January. Today we want to talk about the spiritually transformative NDEs Robin experienced as a teen following the PTSD of her kidnapping in, uh, to Zimbabwe, getting shot, and the NDEs that followed. The processing she has worked through with her NDEs her music, and her art has resulted in the singing, the art, and the group healing programs she offers today available on her website. As an example, three recent offerings included Nurturing Your Nervous System, Witnessing the Truth that Trauma Survivors are a Powerful Group of People, Generational Healing to Restore Your Future, Suggesting that When We Have Vague Anxiety, Scarcity, Health Concerns, and Low Self-Esteem, the Underlying Cause Can Be Generational Trauma, And third, being cherished, healing embryotic and inherited shame, about which Robin writes, When we incarnate and our first home is in our mother's womb, a river of information begins flowing into our growing body, telling us about the lives, losses, glory, and grief from our mother, father, and their mothers and fathers. The unseen sufferings of those who came before us can create imprints on our self-view and worldview. Robin has given over 16,000 sessions and witnessed the profound healing that comes when compassion is given to our ancestors and to ourselves. Robin, welcome back to NDE Radio. Thank you, Lee. It's a delight to be here. Well, it's wonderful to have you back. Robin, you may want to start with a a summary of your kidnapping at age eight. Yeah, so I'll do a summary and then we'll drop into the later NDEs that, like you said, were a result of the post-traumatic stress. That would be great. When I was eight, I was growing up in a home where there was that generational interruption where my parents didn't know how to care for their children. And so I was not being watched after properly. I was being neglected and I was being exposed to a lot of unsafe adults. And so one of those unsafe adults in my neighborhood chose to abduct me. And it was 1977, so there's a reason to believe he might have been a Vietnam vet but of course had his mind and being traumatized and injured by that experience. And so as best as I can put together, it's possible he might have left behind a child in Vietnam. And so he saw me as, I have lost a daughter, so I'm going to get a daughter. After school, at the end of the school year, I immediately knew my life was in danger and that he was capable of killing me at any moment. And it's a strange thing to say that it was an advantage that I was already an abuse survivor because I knew strategies of how to go silent, how to go dormant, and also how to um, hypervigilantly use my intuition to read him and read what I needed to become in order to survive the situation. So he drugged me, and um, again, it's 1977. He abducted me out of the country, so a plane ride. We'll often get confused of how easy it is in 1977 to abduct a child out of the country. 
Um, even to this day, as uh, human trafficking is still a huge problem. But in 1977, it wasn't even really a discussion or a concern that was um, being formalized. There weren't any laws about child abduction at a national level until many years later, until 1981. There was a case that really brought um, child abduction more to the forefront. So he didn't really have much obstacle to get over to take me out of the country. He took me to Rhodesia, which is now Zimbabwe. And it was the height of the war. And again, based on the facts that I do have, I've drawn the conclusion that he was going to be a mercenary um, in that war because the white government was recruiting around the world, and especially Vietnam vets, um, to be in that war. So he took me there, um, assaulted me, ended up um, abandoning me, uh, giving me to another man, and I ended up being lost in the bush in Zimbabwe. Um, I was picked up by soldiers. That was also extremely dangerous. I thought I was going to die then. Um, one of the soldiers that I called man was many, ca- carries many in his heart. He chose to take me out of that dangerous situation and drop me off near the border closer to South Africa um, with people he thought might be sympathetic to a white child. Those people cared for me, sang to me, helped me heal my bruised ribs from where I was assaulted. And I really thought that was my new life. I thought, this is where I'm going to belong now. And I experienced the first mothering of my life. And I'm going to go ahead and and sing to you just for a moment about the mothering experience. And my singing is different than the African women who sang to me. But what they opened up in me is listening to the land as a way of singing, listening to people's heart as a way of generating sound. So I'm going to do my best in this moment to get across the love that my mommy had gave to me. So again, this was the first mothering, the first being really witnessed with loving kindness, with her compassion that I had received in all of my eight years. And what happened as a result of her caring is that I modeled myself after her and that she taught me what it is to receive love and what it is to give love. And that is really made the person that I am today. Um, And so what happened next, it being war, it was a very chaotic war, there were three, three parties, it was a civil war, is that I ended up being shot Unbeknownst to me, I wandered to an area where a battle was starting among soldiers, and one of those soldiers spotted me and chose to shoot me. And so I had a death experience from that, which is elaborated on more in your in the previous podcasts, and also is fully elaborated in my upcoming audiobook, Loving Bravery, which will be released um, this spring, 2023. 
And so I was um, brought back to life by the medicine singing of my mom. And the village took care of me. And her voice came through the veils and she found me on the other side. She called on the ancestors to sing me back to life. So it was like a trail for me to come back to this this life ex- experience. And um, what happened next is that the soldiers came back about two days later and attacked the whole village. And it's possible that I might be the only survivor of that massacre. And again, I had a second death experience as I was running to escape from that massacre because I only I had a blood loss two days before myself, and so I was very weak. And so running from that started the bleeding again, and I had a second death experience, which again is um, included in several of my, of my other videos. And so I was saved again by another woman, and her name is Mia Lucy, and she took me back to her homestead. She put me on her back. I was half dead. She washed the blood off my face, and she took me back and cared for me. And there I met her granddaughter, Miamu, and they all cared for me. And eventually they asked the nearest white people across the Limpopo River in South Africa. We found this white girl. We don't know what to do with her. We don't know where she came from. They assumed that I was Rhodesian and that maybe my family had been killed in Rhodesia. They had no idea that I was American. Um, so um, me, Lucy, and Miamu took me across the river um, gave me to this white farming family who then hospitalized me. And from there, I was interviewed, and it was found out that I was American. And then I was sent back to the U.S. with an escort from, from South Africa. And and what happened next is that, again, I came from a family that just didn't have the generational health to care for me and to ask me what happened and to find out how to respond to the magnitude of trauma. And so my mother hit me and told me, don't ever talk about this. And so I didn't. And the secrecy and the repression in my family is is what a lot of people have experienced when they're in a family that cannot handle truths, cannot handle difficulty, cannot handle working through these traumas so we can actually make meaning of them. So I repressed all of it. I put it all away inside my body, which takes a tremendous amount of energy and comes at a very high cost. Very successful to repress our trauma, but it makes incredible amounts of tension in our bodies. And so I continued on surviving lots of um, more abuse in the hall, in my neighborhood. And by the time I got to be a teenager, literally my body was starting to die of the stress. And there's something called parasympathetic shock. And so parasympathetic is, the, is in a healthy way, is the rest and digest in our nervous system, the tend and befriend. It's that calm place we can get to um, before we go to sleep, before we're, you know, when we're on vacation, when we just settle in and feel safe. Um, to the extreme, parasympathetic can put us in a state of paralysis. And the even further step from that is that it will take our heart rate down so low that we are in dormancy of death. And so when we have a shocking situation, 
when it feels like I may not make it out alive from this, our body can choose a couple different directions. We can either go into sympathetic, which is total activation, running, screaming, fighting, yelling, or if that strategy is going to increase our danger, meaning like the perpetrator might be more dangerous to us if we fight back, then our body will go into the other end of the spectrum, into that parasympathetic shock, and decrease our breathing, increase our numbness, decrease our ability to even feel and know what's happening. And like I say, at the most extreme of that is going into such a low heart rate that we actually die. So people can die of shock. And so that's what started happening to me when I was a teenager, that whenever I exercised and got my heart rate up, that my body couldn't discern between I'm at swim practice and intentionally getting my heart rate up versus my life is being threatened and I need to go into that complete dormancy in order to protect myself. So I started having, um, every swim practice I started passing out, like my heart rate would race and then being the repressed teenager where I was, I would still keep swimming and then I would faint. Like I said, my breathing, my heart rate would get so low that I would go unconscious. And my swim coach and my teammates um, pulled me out of the water. And, and it was an interesting response from my swim coach. He was a very good man and he was very caring. And he called my parents and said, something is very seriously wrong here. And you need to get her medically assessed before I can let her back in the pool because I've pulled her out of the pool unconscious twice. Um, Sadly, my parents being neglectful and unattentive on many levels, including medical, they just made a regular doctor appointments for like a week and a half later. And these episodes of parasympathetic shock, the dormancy were increasing. Um, and so what happened is I was um, actually with my boyfriend at the time. And this time it was a very peaceful thing. We were just discussing a backpacking trip we were going to take. My heart started racing out of control. I went completely pale. My blood pressure dropped. And I grabbed hold of his arm and said, you know, something is really wrong here. So um, we laid me down. And I just told him, just don't leave me. I don't know what's happening, but just don't leave me. And I had also suffered an assault maybe a very short time before. And so my body was expressing the shock of that assault. I had actually been strengthened. And... And so my body was reliving that while my boyfriend was, you know, he was a teenager too. He wasn't really prepared to be compassionate witness to me for all of this. But my body just went into that dormancy. My heart rate completely went down. My blood pressure rode out. And I crossed over into another death experience. And, and what happened was once the buzzing stopped in my ears, once I got to the other side in this beautiful place and I would liken it to a beautiful day in Ireland it was a rolling green hills and my my body, my presence my awareness was still with my kind of etheric body on this rolling green fields. what happened is that my awareness rose up out of my body and I could see this big picture landscape 
And over to my left was a maze, kind of like a stone-built maze. And from this aerial view, I could see that there was something important in the center of this maze, but it was built in this closed-in area, and I realized it was my own heart. And the beating was getting dimmer and dimmer. And if I didn't get to my own heart and reconnect to myself, then my heart light was going to go out. So I was panicked and I was like, how can I get to my own heart in this really confusing maze? It has all these dead ends and all these walls built to block things off. And what happened next is that I was back kind of in that location where my etheric body was, and I realized I can't do it. I can't reconnect to my heart. I can't get through all the walls of that maze. I can put it all back together. And so I just gave up. I softened in. I surrendered into the land. And what met me there as I softened into the land was the singing of my ancestors. And I do have Irish heritage. And so these feminine voices met me in the land, and they sang to me in an ancient language that I could not understand, but my soul could understand. And what they were telling me, what they were getting across to me was, you will be okay someday. You will reconnect to your heart. You will gather back all the lost parts of yourself in that blocked-off maze. And we will help you do it. For now, we're going to return you back to your body and just do the best you can for the next several years. So they sang to me more and they returned me back to my body. And again, what happened is coming into the physical form, like you've heard from so many other death and return experiencers, is that it was awful to come back to my physical body. Blood pressure was so low, my ears were hissing. I felt like my body had just dumped all this kind of toxic material and into my into my circulation and my muscles felt horrible. And when I could speak again, when I could hear again, um, my boyfriend at the time, he was crying and he was holding my hand and he was obviously very upset because I was unresponsive. And I was paralyzed when I came back, which is part of the parasympathetic shock. And so eventually I kind of asked him to help me move my limbs. And it took about 30 minutes for me to gain the ability to move my muscles, move my limbs. And I asked him kind of what happened. And he said, you were out for about 20 minutes. And I said, well, I only heard you talking to me at the end. And he said, I was talking to you the whole time. And so again, you know, being unsupported, I didn't tell my parents about this. I kind of minimized it. Um, I just asked him to um, go home so I could sleep. And and I just kind of mentioned something to my parents about, like, well, I'm having these paintings. Tell them the, the magnitude of what had happened. So again, you know, they were not really concerned. They were not really listening to me. I told them I was dropping things. I was falling down sometimes. Um, sometimes my body would just give out. I would find myself on the floor. And so before I could get to that uh, regular doctor's appointment, 
um, it happened again. And I was just walking through the kitchen. I think my body just kind of was bringing up trauma memories, but the other aspect of my body repressed it back down. And so I knew the pounding heart. I knew the buzzing in my ears. I knew I was going to pass out soon. And I'm that I was on a brick floor, so I crouched down as quick as I could, let my body roll back, and and then again I crossed over, and my blood pressure dropped out. All my vital signs had completely gone. And what happened this time was so different. And I started lifting off above the planet. And it was incredibly peaceful, incredibly directed, and beautifully held. And so I lifted off and I was looking back at the earth. And it was just a small round ball that was growing further and further. And I landed on something that was holding me safe. And I was literally... Um, I did have a sense of some form of etheric body, and I was holding on to the edge of this something safe. And I was looking out into the universe and realizing that this something I was holding on to was keeping me organized into a being, organized into not just being bits and parts that were random in the universe. Because beyond that raft I was holding on to, I could see all the molecules in the universe. And some were quite organized and some were more freeform. And if I went off my raft of organization, I would become matter. I would just become molecules that would join in and organize with that which was out there. And I looked back to see, is I, am I still connected to Earth? And there was a golden tether that was at my sacrum. The sacrum is sometimes also referred to as the sac sacred. And so that's the triangle bone between our pelvis bones. And so at that point, I had a tether back to the back to the earth. So I knew I was going to live. I knew I was going to return back. And when I really looked and got curious about what is this raft I'm laying on, it was incredibly organized. And that organization was very comforting because then I knew I wouldn't just kind of disperse into molecules. And so again, I was returned back to my body. And what I, when I really looked into, I drew out what that was. I was on that raft I was laying on and I realized it was cell membrane. And so while I was in the macro of the universe, I was holding on to the organization of a cell membrane. We think of the cell being a whole universe. The membrane holds that which makes the cell on the interior. So that microorganization was holding me into still being a person. And what happened when I came back was I became aware of the ambulance crew um, that was resuscitating me, and they they had already done all the kind of resuscitations. I'm not sure of all the details of that. Um, but the oxygen mask was on my face. And I was very aware that it was off kilter because the plastic edge was actually um, scraping my eyeball. And I couldn't speak, couldn't lift my limbs, but I was telepathically speaking to one of the ambulance attendants and saying, please get the plastic edge out of my eye. 
And he completely paused on all his activity of getting me on the gurney. And he just stopped and he looked at me and he shifted that oxygen mask so that my eye was safe. And just that loving action meant the world to me. And I really like to get across to people that the tiniest gesture can mean the world to somebody when they're really vulnerable. And then, of course, we all know people can hear you when they're unconscious and unresponsive. So what is said to somebody when they're dying or injured is really of utmost importance. And what happened next is I think I went unconscious again. I woke up in the hospital and um, they did all kinds of tests on me. And this was 1989 when I was a teenager. Um, and post-traumatic stress really hadn't filtered in to the awareness in the medical system. There's plenty of places it still has not. Um, polynagal theory about the kind of extremes of sympathetic and parasympathetic um, wasn't part of Western medical system. So they never asked me, are you an abuse survivor? They never asked me, are you extremely stressed? And why would you be this level of stress being a white middle-class teenager? And, and so, and they did assess that I had extremely high cortisol levels. They expressed that my body was detoxing all kinds of toxicity. And then they assessed um, that my heart had a damaged kind of mitral, prolapsed mitral valve. They said this wouldn't cause what you know, these passing out episodes. So they never put it in their paradigm to really look at you have post-traumatic stress that's literally killing you. And I remember the exit interview with the MD, the lead MD, who had maybe seen me once while I was like, five days I was in the hospital. And so they were releasing me with no solution. I was still going pa uh, paralyzed and unconscious about three times a day. And, you know, they were putting me in MRIs and all kinds of things, and they, they had no answer. And he started telling me this story about a teenage girl my age who was a high achiever, honor roll, just like I was. And he said she was running a race, and she won the race. And once she kind of broke the finish line, she kept running. And it was in an area that was um, near the sea, and she, everyone's whore, kept running and ran off the cliff as a way to end her own life. And he was saying to me, she put too much pressure on herself. And he's telling me the story of you should not put so much pressure on yourself. Don't worry about your grades so much. And I was looking at him with this huge mahogany desk that separated us, all his big gold-framed three degrees behind him, and I thought, your training failed you, and you are failing me right now. Because if you think worrying about grades can make this level of stress in a human body, then you know nothing. So, it, of course, I felt even more alone in my trauma, and you know, in that moment, I was kind of making my own suicide plan, because he was kind of giving me instructions. And, and fortunately, in uh, my body's great wisdom, when I got taken home and then my parents left to go to work, and that's when I was going to go ahead and do my suicide plan, my body went paralyzed and I couldn't do it. So while it was such the expression of trauma, 
and it was incredibly hard on me, it also ended up saving my life. And what I really like to get across to people is that in that moment when that physician was failing me, I was getting this deep devotion to find out what is happening to my body? Why is my body completely at the edge of survival and going over the edge? And so part of my mission as a craniosacotherapist, as a practitioner to help other people heal their trauma, has been to help them have self-compassion for their trauma response, for the strategies that our mind instantly goes into. We, our personality, does not choose our trauma survival strategy. Our nervous system chooses it in a millisecond. Again, sometimes fighting can make the situation worse. So there's all kinds of, historically, there's been all kinds of shaming of people who have lived through assault and violence because they went paralyzed and numb and didn't fight back. But indeed, the nervous system was wise enough to know that could exacerbate the assailant and that going dormant is survival. And so it's been my honor to serve so many thousands of people and again, help them have understanding of their nervous system response and get rid of their own shame and cultural shame about this is what body does, all mammals do, when our life is threatened. I wanted to ask you, in the Zimbabwe NDEs, you were accompanied by a variety of beings through the NDE, including two women who sang to you who were not deceased, but two days later were probably deceased. In these NDEs, in the green rolling field and the maze, and then in outer space, did you feel that there was any companionship with you? Um, those singing voices, again, that were my ancestors in the land. Huh. The big presence in that first one. And then in that second one, it was that cell membrane, that raft of the basic unit of life is a cell. And so while there wasn't a personality or a particular presence that I could relate more easily to, you know, as, form, as a form of a deity or a presence or a loving ancestor, that cell was my ultimate guide. And again, that's why I love biology. I'm kind of a science geek. Was it a manifestation of a universal consciousness or was it a part of yourself? No, that's a great reflection because I haven't talked about these two NDEs as much, but I'm just realizing that since the cause of death was so biological, then presence of the cell and the organization and the molecules was my guide. Like that was the antidote to my biological stress. Right. Well, why don't you continue? I hated to interrupt you because <laughs> I think we're getting into some of the work that this experience or these experiences of yours have led you to. Mm -hmm. And so again, I really love pointing out that it's that moment sometimes when we don't get our needs met that it develops and breaks open our determination to do the research to educate ourselves in a way that can make it so somebody else doesn't get let down in the same way that that physician let me down. So it's been my passion and career to learn the nervous system, to learn the biology of trauma resolution, and deliver that to other people 
so that they can move forward. And and again, with all my NDEs being open, my intuition is so readily available to me. And the more trauma resolution I did, the more precise, um, useful, and with depth my intuition readings are. And so I don't so much get readings like aura readings or um, being colors. I get biology readings. So I see people's cells. I see people's organs. I see people's history within their biology and how their health is expressing it. Um, so I'll give an example. I worked with one woman and she was, um, she contacted me because she was, um, her son had been, had some mental illness and had become unsafe to her once he was a full-size adult. And so she had, um, and sadly, heartbreakingly had to distance from her own son. And so he came back into her life at one point and she started having all these headaches. And she's like, why am I having all these headaches? And so I was doing a session with her and I looked at her and I was like, hmm, base of your skull, there's an impact, there's a history of got knocked backwards. And and I do frame these things as questions to people so that they can have choice in agreeing or not. And so I asked her, was there a time when somebody pushed you backwards on a porch and it was this heartbreaking moment of not only realizing that you were unsafe, but the person you were unsafe with, it was just a really heartbreaking betrayal. And she said, yes, my son, once he had um, gotten physically strong enough, had pushed her down and had been quite an impact to the back of her skull. I said, do you think that's why you're getting the headaches again now that he's back in your life? To remind you of that experience and to be very, very cautious. And she broke down crying with the grief um, of so many parents who have had to distance from their own children for various reasons. And so we worked through that physical things from my craniosacral training in terms of her dura and her positioning of her occiput getting that moving again. And she felt um, relief from the headaches as well as relief from her guilt that she did indeed need to keep herself safe and prioritize her safety. In your work with other people, have you encountered people who've had near-death experiences themselves? Oh, yes. I love working with other near-deathers. And really, especially if it's been recent, the key is clearing whatever traumatic incident that likely caused the death experience so that people can bring their vitality and their essence back into their body. Um, I'm all about grounding. I'm all about rooting. Because when we're too etheric, when too much of our vitality is on the other side or up and out, we're dissociated from our physical form, our human body suffers from that. Our organs, our blood, our tissue, our brain needs our presence in our physical form. So I work with a lot of empathic people, a lot of highly intuitive people, spiritual people, to help them come back in and say yes to incarnating Yes to committing to life. Yes to being here. The use of music began in Zimbabwe. I mean, in recognizing your own healing. And then how did you pick it up? As you say, it's not exactly what you heard when you were eight years old. Yeah, so it's been a really interesting evolution, again, of saying yes to divine source. Let me be the hollow bone. Let this singing medicine come through me. And what God opened me in 
in my experiences with my mamas and the land and the death experiences um, in Africa is how to listen, how to surrender, how to be humbled so that divine source that I call the great heart can sing through me. And so when I'm giving singing medicine to people, I'm humbling myself and saying, what is medicine for this person right now? How can what comes through my vocal cords serve their healing? And and I think what's innate in it is that compassionate witness, saying, I see you, I see what you live through. I'm sorry it's been so hard. And can I offer mothering? Can I offer nurturing? Because so often what happens to make something traumatic um, is that there's nobody to witness us, nobody to support us. And so um, Gabarate talks about there can be a hard event, but if we're supported, if somebody says, oh my goodness, that was so impactful to you, can you tell me about how that felt? it is less likely to become post-traumatic stress. When we're told it didn't matter, when we're told to just put it behind us, when we're told to just get over it, that's when the repression kind of boils inside of us and it's more likely to turn into the repetitive bite layers, hypervigilant nervous system, the health problems because it's repressed or suppressed in our system. So when we can be witness to each other, when we can say, mm, I'm so sorry, do you want to shake with me? Do you want to dance with me? Do you want to sing with me? Do you want to let that come through your body as trauma is compressive and chaotic in our body? So when we can do things like dancing, like continuum, like movement, like felt and rice, acupuncture, breathing practices, all those beautiful things, we can take trauma energy and turn it into creative energy. And so that's so much of what I've done. So I have the singing medicine. I work with people through the singing, using my intuition. And I also do the visual art. And it has been a profound honor to be able to draw my death experiences, draw the totem animals that I see, and just allow divine source to come through my hands. During my first death experience in Zimbabwe, um, just before I came back through the veil, final veil, I was met by a bee, and she showed me that divine source had an entire cache of drawings for me to create. And she said, once you're safe, um, which is going to take years into your adulthood, we're going to give you image after image. And it's to help people remember their belonging to the great heart, their belonging to their original source. And so my experience is that the drawings are unstoppable. <laughs> They're limited. And especially during the winter when I'm in war and hibernation, they just come through me one after the other. There was even a point, and some highly creative people can relate to this, that I went to my naturopath and said, I'm too creative. It's too much. Can you homeopathic remedies dial it down a little bit? Because I need to sleep. I'm still human. I can't stay up and draw 24 hours a day. So, But when we turn this trauma energy into creative energy, then it just gets channeled all these beautiful ways. So I'm writing music. I'm 
learning guitar again. I'm doing all these drawings. I'm working on my second book. And so I love being of service and I love creativity and using symbols and singing as the pathway to get past our complex intellect, past our defenses, and get to that place where we're undiminishable, that place that was never actually harmed by our traumatic experiences. And that's my goal with the singing medicine is to say directly to that goodness, that innate goodness, that true nature inside of us is to meet that with my voice. And so right there, is that a, how would I go ahead and sing to you? That sound okay? That sounds great. Sensations, images, colors, emotions happened during the singing? Wow. Well, let the audience reflect on that because I, I want to ask a question of you. To get from PTSD, from traumatic energy, through just becoming normal, which is a huge challenge for so many people, to uh, the uh, compassion, and even empathy of a creative energy. Do you think that it was necessary to have um, a near-death experience to facilitate that in yourself, or was this something that you can lead other people to? Mm. Um, yeah, I'll answer that in two parts. I believe that especially having that many, that many death experiences is that opened me to very profound levels. And so for me to do intuitive readings is just easy as breathing in and out. Mm. You know, whereas some other people might get more tired out by it, I just, I really thrive on it. So, and what I'll also say is, I don't think you had to have a near-death experience in order to heal your trauma. And I do believe it kept me on track and had deeper faith of where I was going, because when I was in my 20s is when I started doing my trauma resolution, and um, my reactions were so, as I talked about, so um, extreme, and that I actually went um, into inpatient trauma treatment um, because of the magnitude I had to work on. I couldn't function. I couldn't sleep. I I really needed a very structured setting in, in which to open up the magnitude of the trauma I've lived through. And it took years. And so I want to say that to people. Of, even if you're working in what I call the gritty years, the really raw part of trauma resolution, and it doesn't look like you're getting anywhere, keep going. Because it took, I think it took two years before I really smiled or had any sense of joy. 
And then it took, yeah. you know, probably into five years before I could receive touch and get a hug without jumping. And um, I also really love to emphasize adrenal support. And again, this is not something that Western medicine really has on their radar. But if you go to a naturopath, an acupuncturist, a functional medicine, an herbalist for practitioner, to get some help with your adrenals, because adrenal fatigue, adrenal exhaustion is extremely real and can be a, quite an obstacle in trauma resolution. Because if you do a trauma memory and you're just laid flat for days, then your adrenals need support. And, and people can do their research, and I really suggest working with a practitioner. The more adrenal fatigue you are, the more you need guidance on that. But just to start people off on some research, um, high doses of vitamin C, ashwagandha, um, cordyceps, rhodiola, licorice root are some herbs that can help feed your adrenal glands, quite literally, to help you up level so you don't have that hypervigilance, so you don't have the high startle. If you know a book drops off a shelf, you don't hit the ceiling. If somebody touches you from behind, you don't turn around to defend yourself. So that is one of the primary things I recommend first. It is addressing your body, addressing your adrenals, and really cleaning up your diet. I'm writing a second book called When You Need a Miracle. And that is addressing all the ways to heal our trauma. And I get disappointed or a little bit saddened when I hear people only recommend psychotherapy. I think psychotherapy can be a very valuable tool. And if it's not a match for everyone, I don't want people to stop their healing there. You know, if either it's culturally not a fit or financially not a fit, there's movement, there's dance, there's feeding yourself really well, getting your diet clear of sugar, inflammatory foods like processed wheat, processed foods. And so the biggest chapter in my book on how to heal trauma is feeding yourself well, getting rid of processed foods, staying all cooking whole foods. It is a tremendous act of self-love to feed yourself well. And the research um, from a perspective on the ACEs score, the adverse childhood experience, is that there's a very high correlation between adverse childhood experiences like being abandoned, being hit, living through violence, um, living in poverty, having your parents be incarcerated, and later on illness, whether that's organ illness, inflammatory illness, cancers. And so if you weren't taken good care of as a child, then it is imperative that you take such good care of yourself as an adult. It's a beautiful way to break that generational neglect of trauma, to feed yourself well. And again, not eating out, staying home, investing in good whole foods, vegetables. doesn't matter to me too much kind of what plan people go with, as long as it's a high plant-based diet, organic foods, clean foods, and way less processed foods and sugar. And of course, alcohol and caffeine. So it's the biggest thing that I've done for myself in my trauma resolution is to make it so my body has vitality. Some doctors are now looking into psychedelics, psilocybin, ecstasy, and so forth. And 
controlled doses as a way of overcoming PTSD. Do you think that would be in any way a parallel to the NDEs that you experienced in opening up someone who is suffering from PTSD? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I'll admit when I was first coming into understanding about those um, methodologies, um, I had my own neg- like a kind of a negative bias against them because I was concerned about people feeling their own agency in their healing process versus a drug being their agent in their healing process. Um, I did take a training with Bessel van der Kolk, who wrote The Body Keeps the Score, and he did a really wonderful job presenting the research um, about those methodologies, and it really shifted my bias. Um, so for somebody like myself with so many near-death experiences, it would be not the right methodology for me. It would mess with me, I think, in terms of you can have visionary experiences just by breath practices. And so I really come to understand it can be at the most powerful breakthrough point for people. And I've befriended people who are practitioners who lead people on those journeys. And it can be a real turning point for some people. And it still needs to be addressing the underlying trauma and doing work of turning towards their trauma experiences, being with them. Um, but I think it can be the vehicle to allow people, especially initially, to turn towards the truth of their history and the truth of their story, held in the context of um, maybe a portal being open to divine source. And maybe those plant medicines or um, human-made medicines can open that portal for people. I was going to say, you've, you've had more than your share of out-of-the-body uh, supernatural encounters. Yeah, and meditated for all of my adult life to be grounded, to be in my body, and to every day deepen in. And speaking of which, I just went to a five-day silent meditation retreat in December, and I was, you know, it was about day four of the meditation, and I was just having, and I love meditating in a group because the group potency mm-hmm. of drug delta brain state is incredible. And so I was meditating, and like I say, I my orientation is to get really grounded, root chakra, pelvic root. But all of a sudden, I kind of revisited. Maybe actually it was coming back in from that um, death experience where I was on the cellular raft. But I saw my soul coming back into my body. And I was in the perspective of my soul. And I felt like I was Haley's Comet coming back in. And I was looking down on earth at my body. And it was about the equivalent of like an apple juice, little tiny apple juice can was like the little tiny opening where you peel the little foil off of it. How is Haley's Comet going to fit into that little apple juice sippy cup? (laughs) I just want to say, it's hard to be human. These bodies are grand, magnificent, and limited. And with all my visions and projects, I'm often over planning what I can do because I think, well, when I was on the other side, you could just think it and make it happen. But here, I really need help from a project planner to say, no, actually, Robin, that will take a month or half a year to make that happen. (laughs) But I could just make it happen instantly. How do your own group sessions, when you have five people together, how do they work? Oh, and I love doing the five-person group sessions because people witnessing each other healing is a profound experience for our nervous system, for our remembering our own goodness and potency. Um, so in those groups, I work with um, each person for about 10 minutes. And so I 
do an intuitive reading. I do a, um, literally, I do a drawing of what I'm getting intuitively and hold that up to the camera so they can see that. And then I sing to each person and then add more to the drawing. And again, it's so humbling to do this work because sometimes I just wonder, who am I to be so lucky that I can sing and draw and people have visionary experiences and huge insights and they can forgive their ancestors for their lack of being able to rise to the occasion and forgive their body for not being well or for you know all the different things that we need to forgive and and just people come up with their own solutions when you would help them get to stillness and spaciousness which is the basic premise in biodynamic cranial psychotherapy is just helping people get to delta brain state, illness, spaciousness, then all our own wisdom comes to our consciousness. So again, people will witness each other and all these profound things. Sometimes I just get to sit back and watch. <laughs> well, Robin, we're just about out of time. Tell the listeners how they can find out more about your classes, your art, your music, and how they might participate if they need your help. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I have classes. Um, I teach all kinds of different subjects, really about coming home to yourself, protecting yourself as a healthy empath. I love to get into healing generational pieces. I love to sing people at, at their embryonic self. And I have a class coming up on singing to pregnant women to sing to their babies in their womb. Uh-huh. Lovely. I have the small groups, and I have my Loving Bravely audiobook will be coming out this spring, 2024. And I'm working on my second book, When You Need a Miracle, that's about healing trauma. I'll have um, two art deck cards coming up in the next couple of two years. Mm -hmm. And how can they find you on the web? It's my name, robinlandsong.com. And I also have a YouTube channel where I make lots of videos that are to support and enliven people's healing process. So you can find me there, Facebook, Instagram. And I'd love to make um, lots of videos with my singing medicine and my art so that I can enliven other people's creative process. Well, thank you. Thank you so much for being on the show again. Uh, And uh, this has been a real treat. I think people will get a lot out of it. So thanks to you and thanks to our listeners. And if they'd like to hear this show again or any of our more than 500 archived ad-free NDE interviews, Go to TalkZone's NDE Radio site and hit the Past Shows button. Or go to our YouTube channel, NDE Radio with Lee Whitting, where you can subscribe to and comment on the complete NDE Radio library. And be sure to check out our NDE Radio Facebook page, searching NDE Radio with Lee Whitting on your Facebook app. And listen again next Monday, 11 a.m. Eastern at TalkZone for more NDE Radio. I'm your host, Lee Whitting, saying once again... Thanks for listening.